Hello and welcome to this, the first Blackwell podcast of 2012. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Beijing-based writer James Palmer. Not long after he got off a plane from China recently, I spoke to James about his new book, The Death of Mao, which reconstructs the momentous events of 1976, the year in which China not only lost Chairman Mao, the man who had led the country for over three decades, but also suffered one of the most devastating natural disasters in human history, the Tangshan earthquake, which cost half a million lives. In Chinese folklore, James writes in the book, omens attend the passing of an emperor. And so it was to prove with the Tangshan earthquake, the catastrophic sign that an era of madness and brutality was coming to an end. But before we talked about the earthquake, I asked James to describe what sort of experience the decade-long cultural revolution had been for the Chinese people. So the Cultural Revolution started essentially as a campaign to destroy the people who had opposed Mao during the Great Leap Forward, during the starvation period, but also as an attempt to sort of tip the ruling order upside down to create conditions of chaos that Mao saw as as creating new life, sort of vibrancy. And it coincided with a generation who were, who had been brought up on these constant talk of revolution, war, purges, all this kind of thing, but who grew up in a system that was increasingly stagnant, that had massive official corruption, grey bureaucracy, sort of lifelessness. And so what you had first was you had this extraordinary uh, movement of tens of millions of young people, as young as 12, 11 sometimes, typically sort of 13 to 16, 17, across the country in the Red Guard movement. And they just ran riot, and they were allowed to run riot. And so they, they attacked teachers, they burnt down temples. And this was a combination of efforts directed from the center and of spontaneous sort of rage and hatred towards the old. Which which must have been all the more shocking in a country like China, which normally has reverence for the old. Well, I think there was was part of the thing was it was such a violation of the country's basic cultural values that, you know, in, in... if you think of medieval Europe, when you get things like the bonfire of the vanities uh, under Savonara and the uh, Florence, you get this complete tipping of the normal order. This the world turned upside down, and that's really what you had in China. You had a complete reversal of of the norm, and so you had these wild battles between red guard factions, hu- huge scenes of public confession and torture, and then it sort of shifted. Then it became at the same time, you had all these political factions, these Chinese politics has always been very localized at the same time. So you had local political factions taking advantage of the chaos to move against their enemies. And this mood of paranoia that sort of swept the country, these witch hunts that began where anybody could be singled out. And people then beyond the Red Guards, young people, people in their 20s, whose path to promotion, whose path to good jobs was blocked by existing figures, used that to attack them, to overturn them, to suddenly be the leaders. So by, by 1970, you'd had four years of really near, near civil war between different local factions, different groups, all sort of semi-directed from the center, 
but also these local eruptions of and it could be a whole range of factors it could be about jobs it could be about corruption it could be about ethnicity about clashes between the han chinese and the minorities it could be about religion it could be about muslim groups or buddhist factions or the in tibet of course the destruction of tibetan buddhism very often it was a vengeance against earlier political violence because china had seen mass political violence too during the great leap forward where maybe as many as 2 3 million people died by being killed by their fellow chinese not by starvation and so in many village studies what you find is that the people who whose families whose clans had been attacked during the great leap forward took revenge on the people who had come to the top then and who now because they were on the top were targets for this this revolt this uh, this rebellion then by by the 1970s early 1970s things had sort of calmed down across most of the country was was that due to kind of exhaustion or or was some kind of order imposed upon it it was a mixture it was partially that the new order was established that the people who had who had been the rebels were now in charge so wang hongwen for instance one of the gang of four who started as a factory guard in shanghai who led a, a rebel movement to attack the existing order had become the party boss of shanghai it's partially that people were worn out and it was partially that mao had sort of pulled back a bit by for instance sending the sending the young people off into the countryside dispersing that sort of political force uh, and by others in the center had used the army the pla to restrain the rebel movements or, or to outright crush them through actual battles and so while you had these you had these spots of extreme violence and you had this general mood of sort of nervousness and paranoia and fear across the country that you could be condemned for speaking out of turn it wasn't as quite as bad as it had been then you had a the sudden fall of lin biao was enormous who was he was the second in command of the country he was the heir apparent to mao and suddenly he was a traitor he was he was gone he was a nun person and it, it used to be that you had his portrait up by mao's in chinese homes and you had to take it down overnight So this was this enormous disillusionment this giant what's sort of going on so you had then then several years of sort of where it really was a crushing kind of grinding blandness to life because so much of our life was still destroyed or unacceptable or taboo from you couldn't for instance you couldn't play western instruments you couldn't whereas in Shanghai before the cultural revolution you still had radio shows playing western classical music that was all gone violins that used to be made uh, in huge numbers and practiced by chinese kids destroyed so people were practicing the violin in little huts secretly out of hearing uh, all kinds of activities kite flying chess games just not acceptable so the sort of taliban like existence of of dullness and conformity And then by by 1976 people were just fed up of it. They they had had enough. A lot of them were people who had been part of that initial wave sort of popular revolt of we're going to change the order, we're going to make true communism. And they were disillusioned, they were angry, and they there was no appetite for things staying as they were. 
Now, before we come on to the, the the looming crisis of succession, tell me what kind of state Mao was in by early 1976. Well, he was he was pretty much dead on his feet, really. I mean, he was still mentally lucid most of the time, but his speech was becoming increasingly slurred. So he had to go through his personal translator, well, not his personal nurse, who also effectively acted as a translator because she was the only one who could reliably understand what he said. Mao always had quite a heavy Hunan accent, which I guess in English, a little bit like West Country. So the sort of peasant speech and combined that with sort of stuttering and slurring. A lot of the time people just couldn't understand what he was saying. Because he was suffering from a variant of motor neuron disease. Yes, from, from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. So he was shaking. He had numerous other health problems. He was he had wounds from fighting the Japanese and the, the nationalists. He was in his 80s in general. So he was completely, he was worn out, heart attacks, all kinds of things. So what was his grip on power like at this stage? It, well, it was still absolute. That's the extraordinary thing, because nobody could risk moving against him. Even in this sort of incapacitated state, one word from him, one one gesture could still destroy people. And so everybody was hanging on to him. And this part of the country's paralysis in the 70s, the mid 70s, was because of Mao's own paralysis, because there was he didn't have the, the energy to push anything new. And so the whole country was almost the old regime was also on its deathbed waiting to, to expire. And so who is in the wings eyeing up the, the position, the, 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 the imminent vacancy? The obvious candidate was a man called, who we talked about earlier, Wang Hongwen, who was this very charismatic um, sort of political bruiser come up through the Shanghai, uh, the, the January storm in 1967 when Shanghai was seized by civ- sort of civil warfare. And he ended up, him and his his little faction, ended up on top. And he had been sort of groomed by Mao after Lin Biao fell. Behind him was uh, Jiang Qing, Mao's wife, Madame Mao. And he was very much under her spell. She was this very disliked figure within the party who was able to, to use her closeness to Mao to destroy, again, people who, who she saw as enemies. And she was the one constantly pushing in the later years for the continuation of the Cultural Revolution, for more revolt, more attacks, no opening, no, no, no surrender. This ideal of sort of revolutionary purity that could be fulfilled only by death. So Wang was the, the obvious sort of possible successors first, and that would have implied Jiang Qing being in, in power behind him. Had two other, they had two other allies, the other members of the Gang of Four, but who also had high-level political roles. Now, the, the other contender, the, the person who people saw as the next potential leader was Deng Xiaoping, who had been uh, in this amazing sort of rise and fall, rise, fall, rise. He had been purged at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution spent years in, in internal exile, been put back into power by Mao, begun economic changes that uh, sort of began to create green shoots in the economy. And he was very closely associated with Zhou Enlai, who was a hugely respected 
older than Mao, hugely respected figure within the country, within the Communist Party, and Deng was sort of seen as his protege. And then you had um, you had a third figure, Hua Guofang, who was this very sort of not really bland, but a sort of a non-entity. People didn't take him seriously. He was very sort of personable. He got on with people, and he sort of seems to have come up through the ranks because he didn't piss anybody off too badly. And everybody sort of saw him as being on their side or as being potentially on their side. So that that was the kind of lineup as Mao was as Mao was dying was Wang Hongwen sort of representing the far left, Deng uh, representing the sort of reformist what were called the the rightists within within China, and Hua who didn't really represent anything who was just this sort of John Major type figure you know acceptable to all parties, and they were jostling for position. But none of them were willing to make any moves before Mao died, because making those moves would have exposed them to a degree that their enemies could have used against them. And that's that's probably why Lin Biao fell in the first place, in the, the previous second-in-command, because he was trying to position himself for the leadership that made him a threat to Mao, and Mao moved to have him crushed, he perhaps moved in response to trying to overthrow Mao, it's all very unclear. But it was all, it was just too risky to do anything while Mao was still in the game. So how does a natural disaster become implicated in the outcome of these power plays that are going on? Two things. Firstly, the, the Chinese have always had this idea of the mandate of heaven, the idea that natural disasters show that a dynasty's time has ended. Now, this sounds like superstition, but when you look at it, it's not, because natural disasters are constant, but there's nothing... They're not natural. Every natural disaster is shaped by the society it takes place in, by the ability of the authorities to respond to a managed disaster. So what caused people to judge that a dynasty had lost the mandate of heaven wasn't that a disaster happened, was that the authorities failed to respond to the disaster, that they failed to save people, to relieve people, to provide aid. So when this earthquake struck, there was very much a sense that this showed that something was something was coming to a close, that something was was ending. And the second thing was that the Gang of Four, the... Um, the faction led by Wang Hongwen and Jiang Qing, were wildly out of touch with the ordinary Chinese people. They had no concept that people were fed up with the kind of politics they represented. And the earthquake made that gap very clear, because while Hua, Hua Guofang and, uh, was going down to the earthquake zone, was being pictured with survivors, was portraying himself as somebody who cared about the public, the Gang of Four was, it was in Beijing, making not the slightest effort for earthquake relief, and writing stories, because they controlled the media, they always had a very firm grip on, on the media, putting stories in the media that were so inhumane and callous in terms of their relationship with the ordinary victims that portrayed the earthquake as just another opportunity for Maoist triumph that it became obvious, it became even more obvious that they had no idea 
what people wanted, what people thought. Now, we've, we've talked a lot about the high politics. Tell me a bit about Tang Shan. What kind of place is it and what kind of stories did you uncover there? Well, Tang Shan is a very ordinary town. It's a, a big industrial centre, lots of mines, and it's a sort of, um, you know, sort of Sheffield, Birmingham, something like that. Straightforward people. It was a, it was a slight backwater, so there had been a, a political purge there, uh, torture, people being accused of being traitors, all kinds of things, and thousands of people had suffered. But it wasn't on the scale that of the things that had happened in some other Chinese cities. It was, it was damaged by the Cultural Revolution, but it wasn't. It didn't have the heart sort of torn out of it. That was partially because it was a working city. It was very much a city about getting the coal dug, getting the steel made. The earthquake struck in the middle of the night on the twenty eighth of July, and those twenty three seconds have a fair claim to be the most 20, destructive twenty three seconds in in recorded history, haven't they? Yes, they, the, the city was devastated, annihilated. Um, if you look at pictures, you see one building out of a thousand left standing. It looks like an atomic bomb has been dropped on it. And the thing was, the epicenter of the earthquake was directly below the city. So the absolute worst, the, there's two scales you use for earthquakes, the, the Richter scale and the Macaulay scale. And the Macaulay scale measures the intensity of the damage on the ground. And in the center of Tangshan, it was intensity 12. It was the highest possible level of damage. So just everything was wiped out. But not only Tangshan, but villages for dozens of miles around were also annihilated. It, could, it depended entirely on where you were. So you had, you had cases where one village was untouched, where tiles came off the roof, and another village where not a building was left standing and half of the people died. And because people were indoors, because it was the dead of night, no warning, and so quick, so, so incredibly quick, you had to be fantastically fast or lucky to get out. The speed, not just the, not just the scale of the destruction, but the speed with which it happened, the time at which it happened, made it one of the deadliest events in human history. And you say, James, that Tang Shan saved itself. Does, does that mean that the response from the centre, therefore, was inadequate or, or tardy? When I say Tang Shan saved itself, I mean the vast majority of the rescue efforts were done within the first sort of six hours by ordinary people who got together, who dug each other out of the rubble and who showed amazing courage, uh, fortitude in doing so, who put, who, and at risk of their own lives at, at a time when aftershocks were still causing buildings to collapse, would go into teams and just dig out people who they didn't even who they didn't know, who were just just whoever they could find. The response from the centre was very was I would say it was as good as it could be, which wasn't very good at all. The whole way the political system was structured meant that Tangshan was never going to receive the help it needed. Because first of all, they just didn't have the technology. The country was so backward. There were no earthquake rescue teams. They didn't have anything to use. And so you just had the army sort of turning up and digging people out by hand. And while that helped, because at least they were young and fit, all it was was more manpower. Rescue equipment didn't arrive for, I think, 10 days after the quake. 
And because of the country, because of the political paranoia, they flatly turned down foreign aid. Other countries, Japan, America, offered to send help and it was refused straight out. Because accepting it would have meant leaving yourself politically vulnerable. It was just unacceptable. China was China. Couldn't take anything from foreigners. And because Tangshan was so economically important, and because the whole focus of the communist regime was on the cities, the countryside got no help whatsoever. So if you go into the center of Tangshan, they remember the PLA, they remember the food aid given. But if you go even a little bit outside, they saw nothing, no food, no aid. They were left, they were entirely abandoned. They got no help for months or, or, or sometimes just forever afterwards. And when food aid did come, it was distributed by politics, particularly not so much in Tangshan itself, but in the villages. Whatever local thug controlled the village uh, and who had decided who was politically acceptable and who wasn't, doled out the food. And so if you were a connected family, if you were politically acceptable, you got the rations. And if you weren't, you didn't, got nothing. And this was, I mean, this was always the case. It was always the case within the commune system that if you, if you had the right connections, if you had the right politics, you got to eat. And if you didn't, you won starvation rations even in ordinary times. But that became even more acute after the earthquake. And within a few weeks, Mao himself was dead. Did the earthquake change what happened afterwards, or did it serve to accentuate the end of an era? I think it marked. I think it marked the end of the era, and it made. I think it also made the Hua Guofang and the the sort of moderates who moved against the Gang of Four, because the earthquake showed out how out of touch they were it made them more confident that they would be able to pull this sort of maneuver off. And it made the country more ready to accept this change. Now, I think it would have happened anyway. I think the, uh, I think the Gang of Four had doomed themselves by their own political blindness and stupidity, but it made everything clearer and more certain. When that final sort of fall came, the public remembered, I think, that Hua had pitched himself as a man of the people and he was to continue to do so over the next couple of years, to continue to push the sort of populist image, and that the Gang of Four had been nowhere. James Palmer. The Death of Mao is out now in hardback. You can find out more about it, as well as several million other titles, by visiting blackwell.co.uk. You'll also find a podcast archive there with over 150 author interviews by clicking the podcast tab on the home page. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Online Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.